Welcome to Strugglers, Stragglers, and Seekers, a podcast for those of us who stumble a bit on the way of trying to live like Jesus, maybe stumble a whole lot, and maybe sometimes get like completely lost, and who wander on the way of our wondering, and you see, I'm getting lost even now. My name is Peggy Ames, and I am a minister, an ordained minister, and a licensed counselor. And I enjoy wearing both of those hats on this podcast. So in today's episode, we're going to take a look at what was said of the earliest followers of Jesus. See how they love each other. And wondering, what happened to all of that? Join us. I am presently reading Diana Butler Bass's wonderful book, a People's History of Christianity. And in it, she, she talks about this explosive growth of the church in the first few centuries. And she quotes an African bishop, Tertullian, who talked about uh, what the opponents of Christianity was, were saying about this movement. And he said the, what their opponents said was, see how they love one another. Now, I have not taken an official survey, but I'm thinking that here in these United States where I live, that if I gathered a group of people together on a street corner or in a coffee shop, uh, maybe not so much in a church or maybe exactly in a church, depending on how much conflict there's been, and I asked them, tell me what comes to mind when I say Christians. What do you associate with Christians? Like I said, I haven't done this, but I'm thinking, I'm thinking that the first comment or the most popular comment or maybe even the thing that gets mentioned at all is, see how they love one another. All of which leads me to ask, what happened? Where did all of that love go? Well, there are a bunch of different ways that we could look at this. <laughs> many of whom, many of which I am like totally unqualified to present to you. So we're not going to go there. You can do socio-political, cultural, the whole nine yards. But there is one that that I think I can say a few things about, and that I think is pretty important. And that is, I think those early followers of Jesus were so well known for their love and care for each other. And by the way, this was not just love and care for um, other Christians. This was love and care for everyone. And it was that that demonstration of love that attracted many people to the church. So I think at least part of what made that possible is that they were so immersed in God's love. They were so overwhelmed by God's love that 
loving each other was like a natural consequence. That the love they had received in such like beyond belief abundance, it was easy to let that love flow to the people around them because God was so generous with God's love, they could afford to be generous in the love and care that they shared with each other. That, that kind of love recognizes God's yes to us. And you don't have to scramble and, and fight and worry. God says yes. So one of the things that I think prohibits this this kind of generous, open-hearted love is a fear-based theology. You know, a, uh, now, I grew up as a Southern Baptist, and fortunately my church was not this way, but I knew of many others who were, and sometimes I heard it at a, a youth conference or in different places and that was this this picture of God as a kind of celestial Santa Claus who was perpetually making a list and checking it twice. So you might be saved, but you could never really be sure. And it didn't matter if you were baptized or how many times you were baptized. If you had walked the aisle or to, to make a profession of faith, and then if you had walked all over and over again to make, you know, rededications, just to be certain, just to be sure, it was like this hugely anxiety-driven faith that it promoted the idea that we can, we can never be good enough. And the anxiety comes from, well, we might be safe now, but gosh, you know, are we really sure? Did we really like pray that sinner's prayer right? Did we really have it in our hearts? Are we really living right? And the call to the call to better align our lives with the way of Jesus was not presented as an invitation of come, live, live your life more fully and more freely. Be who God created you to be. It was like, it was this judgment, anxiety-ridden. And I know I keep coming back to that word anxiety, but that's what it's all about. You have to be anxious. Yeah, even if you're quoting scripture about being anxious about nothing, there was this anxiety about am I really doing okay? Am I checking off all the boxes? Am I good enough? And never really being quite sure of what would happen if you weren't, other than Jesus being really disappointed in you. So in this fear-based belief system, God's yes is always a yes, but. Yes, I love you, but you can do better. It's like, like the, the comments on the report cards that I hated. Yes, but 
you're not working up to your potential. And again, there there is a way of understanding that that is life-giving, that gives us permission to grow and to live into the freedom of God's love to become fully who we're created to be. And there's a way to say that that is shaming. So one of the things I know is that when we are filled with anxiety, when we feel like there's not enough love for us, anxiety it makes us smaller. Anxiety constricts us. So when our faith is based in anxiety, then there's no way we can overflow with love to others. We, we may do a lot of stuff. You know, we may be uh, fixing a casserole or baking a cake every single night of the week to take to somebody. But it's out of that fear and that anxiety. Oh, I, I got to do enough. I got to be enough. Instead of the, the ease of that overflow of God's love. These beliefs that get in the way of us being able to accept and take in God's love in a, a wonderfully overwhelming way, they also can come from our past. They can come from the families we grew up with, from parents and siblings, and they can come from teachers and God forbid they can come from ministers. So you may have been told, you're just no good. Or you're not good enough. Or you may have had an older sibling who was brilliant. Or who's brilliantly talented in some way, like sports or drama or music. And you've lived your whole life feeling like, I don't measure up. I am never going to be as good as my sibling. I, uh, I have in my counseling office several paintings. Uh, a couple of them my father did. I've got, um, I think, a couple of watercolors, or one watercolor and one oil. And then a couple of oil paintings I've done. And what clients don't know when they first walk in is what a statement it is that I have my paintings in there too. Because... When I was in seventh grade, I uh, I didn't know I was getting, getting this story, but when I was in seventh grade, I was in art class, and evidently my, um, my art teacher was a real slave driver who insisted that I couldn't just paint the pretty clouds all quarter, that I actually had to finish the picture and paint the mountain and the lake and everything else because I was really liking those pretty little clouds. So I brought it home one weekend to work on. And I was in my dad's studio. Now, my dad was an artist. He had studied at the Art Institute of Pittsburgh. He was in advertising his whole life, but painted, Lord, I don't know how many paintings. We, we always had the walls of our home were filled with his paintings. And there were enough that, that when he died, um, my siblings and my nieces, we all got together and literally just went round robin taking turns picking out pictures that we wanted. And we each walked away with at least several. 
So I'm in his studio and I'm looking at his painting that he's working on and I'm looking at my painting and I look at his painting and I look at my painting and my seventh grade self makes the decision that I am never going to be as good as my father. Now looking back that wasn't a real fair comparison but that's the belief I created right in that moment. And part of that belief was, well, there's no reason for me to do this. I'm never going to be as good as he is. I never finished that painting. After that, that semester, that quarter of art, I never picked up a brush again. And it, when I was in my guess late 20s there was an art store in the mall in our town and I'd walk past it and feel this pull to go in there and I'd keep resisting it saying oh that's just nostalgia because you grew up watching daddy you know paint and tubes of oils and and bottles of linseed oil and brushes and that just feels like home to you finally I got wise and I realized it doesn't matter we're not in competition. It doesn't matter if I'm as good as he is. What matters is I really enjoy this. This is like a form of meditation to me. To sit down in front of an easel and work on a painting is like a form of meditation to me. I love it. And that's all that matters. That faulty belief that I had as a teenager, that I created as a teenager, kept me from the joy and the pleasure and the love of painting for like way too many years. That's what happens is we internalize these beliefs and sometimes we are told directly um, in, in words, sometimes we, we get it by the treatment that we receive. If you were a victim of emotional abuse or physical abuse or sexual abuse or spiritual abuse, any of those, you got messages that you were worthless, that you didn't count, that you were not valuable, that you were not worthy of being valued, that you were not worthy of this kind of no-holds-barred unconditional love. By the way that you were treated, you got the message that you were bad and you were shamed. And you got the message that you were bad in all kinds of confusing ways. And let me tell you, none of those messages are true. All of those messages can get in the way of our being able to really, really receive, to take in, to be, uh, to, to be overwhelmed by to be amazed by this love of the Creator God who just delights in us and loves us so very much and frees us to love other people.
We may get bits and pieces and, and a little smattering of it. But these old faulty beliefs get in the way. When God's yes to us becomes yes, but. Yeah, God loves me. Yes, but. I'm awful. I'm horrible. I shouldn't even be here. Yes, but if people knew what I was really like. And that's part of the um, uh, the tough part of abuse is that you're told to keep a secret. And so you can walk around feeling like, well, if people really knew who I was or what I was, then they wouldn't be so quick to say that God loved me that much. Sometimes it can seem even inconceivable that God loves us. If we block, if we try to, to, to block, if we have things that get in the way of God's love pouring down on us and through us, then we're not going to have so much to share with other people. Again, we may do a lot. Sometimes that doing a lot is so other people won't see the, the dirt that we think we carry inside. But it's, it's not that, that free-flowing, that see how they love each other. See how they love each other. It's anxious and fearful. So, what to do? How do we find our way back to that place? If you have this dream that we do, I, I have been incredibly blessed in my life that throughout my life I have known and been known by people who really were captivated and captured by God's love. And they so freely shared that love with me. And I think one of the reasons I'm so passionate about this is that it really made such a difference in my life. When I had people in my life telling me I was awful in all kinds of different ways, I had these other people who were loving me with God's love. So I have this dream of one day people looking at a Christian or maybe a little gaggle of Christians or maybe even a community of Christians and saying, see how they love one another. A woman can dream, can't she? So what do we do? Well, a part of it is by identifying those beliefs that you have that uh, maybe they were true at one point and maybe they weren't. Maybe it's what you believed at one point, but is it really what you believe now? And does this belief bring life to you? Does this belief open you up 
to serve and to love and to enjoy and delight in all of God's gifts? Or does this belief keep you mired in fear? So we begin sifting out, and, and part of a fear-driven faith is you get the message that you cannot question anything because the minute you question any belief, no matter how small it is, what, what a small part it is of the whole picture of faith, any little thing you start to question, then you are right down that slippery slope straight to hell. It's not true. Job was one who, who questioned the beliefs of the day and shook his fist at God and de declared that God had to get down here because he had some explaining to do. And at the end of the book of Job, God says, Only my servant Job has spoken rightly by me. So only the guy who questioned everything, not the the guys who were repeating the party line. So it's okay. Now, some of these things we've been talking about, they are ingrained deeply. And some of them are connected to trauma. And when you're dealing with trauma, whether, again, it's physical or sexual abuse, or if it's emotional abuse or spiritual abuse, they are all traumatic. We're starting to, to learn more and more about how trauma affects us, how it affects our brains, how it affects our whole bodies. So it's okay to get some help. It's okay to find a, a therapist, a counselor to help you. Someone who is trained in dealing with trauma and who is not going to just give you Bible verses. Don't get me wrong, I love scripture and I have spent a lifetime studying it. But God also gave us the gift of science and we need that gift in healing trauma. Um... I'm going to post a link in the show notes. I have a little ebook on how to find a counselor. And I know, I know that it can seem daunting and there are all of the, these reasons why you can't. And I'd encourage you not to stop there, but to see what you can do. Because this thing I know, I do know, is that there is one thing that is absolutely true of all of us. And that is we are God's children who are, every one of us, extravagantly loved. Beyond all reason, we are loved. And it may be part of our work for some of us. It may be our life's work to identify and to let go of and to get free of those things that keep us 
from accepting and celebrating and living out of that love. So thanks for joining me today on the Strugglers, Stragglers, and Seekers podcast. I am now can be found on, on um, iTunes uh, through Apple. Please pass the word if you enjoy this. Please share it with others. Also, if you want to know more about my work, you can find me at heartcallings.com. And if you can go to heartcallings.com backslash books, you'll find some of my books. You can purchase them there or through your local bookstore or um, the usual online suspects. Uh, But it includes my latest book, Monday Morning Manna, a collection of stories and reflections that I hope will help you get through the week. Take care and I will see you next time around.